You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Verge. My name is Natasha Bajma. I am the director of the Converging Risks Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. I'm pleased to moderate a series of discussions about ecological security issues between Dr. Rod Schoonover, he's our head of the ecological security program here at CSR, and various subject matter experts over the next several months. CSR expanded its ecological security program in the fall of 2021 with the help of a grant from the VCon Rasmussen Foundation. It represents our latest effort to expand concepts of national security. If you're interested in learning more, please be sure to check out our landmark report, The Security That Binds Us. We'll provide a link in the show notes. Let's turn to our interview. Hey everyone, welcome back to On The Verge. Joining us today is Dr. Tanya Wyatt, Professor of Criminology at Northumbria University in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the United Kingdom. Her research has focused on green criminology with a specialty in wildlife crime and trafficking, non-human animal abuse and welfare, and their intersections with organized crime, corporate crime, and corruption. Dr. Wyatt has also researched the crimes of the powerful, particularly looking at industrial agriculture and the wider issues of pollution. We also have Dr. Rod Schoonover joining us. He's the head of the Ecological Security Program here at the Council on Strategic Risks. Before coming to CSR, he served a decade in the U.S. intelligence community, first at the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, and later at the National Intelligence Council, working on national security and foreign policy implications of environmental and ecological change. Rod, Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, Tanya, before we talk about wildlife crime, I wanted to ask you a bit about your background. How does an American such as yourself with a career in law enforcement end up as a professor of criminology in Northern England? Yeah, thank you. And, And thank you for the invitation to join you today. Yeah, I guess I, I do have a bit of an unusual background. Uh, so I started off as a police officer uh, at the Alameda County Sheriff's Office uh, in the Bay Area of California right after I finished my undergraduate degree at uh, Mills College, which I could give a shout out to because they're struggling now. Uh, but so I had thought that I was going to take my biology degree and become a forensic scientist. And then I sort of shifted gears and actually got into the hands-on law enforcement. Uh, And so I had the opportunity of working at the deputy sheriffs as a deputy sheriff. And then my partner and I moved to Michigan where I was a a patrol officer. And and we just reached a point where, you know, we're child-free, we're uh, had finished two master's degrees in Michigan, and we decided to sell everything and join the Peace Corps. So we went to Ukraine uh, from 2003 to 2005, where I worked at an NGO that was uh, trying to prevent human trafficking. 
And during that experience, I was really struck by the the similarities to wildlife trafficking. So I I just decided to make a big career change and uh, did a PhD uh, in criminology after leaving the Peace Corps. And that was focused on Russia uh, in the Far East in particular. And when I finished that, I was looking for work. And honestly, the criminology programs in the US really weren't interested in environmental crime. Uh, They tend to be very much more quantitatively focused, more traditionally focused. uh, And so when a job advertisement came out at Northumbria University looking specifically for a green criminologist, I jumped on it because it's a very progressive department that was looking to, to challenge the boundaries of the discipline saying, you know, we can see the environment and the non-human as victims of crime as well. And this is a, another tool that we can use to prevent, to, to tackle environmental degradation. And so, yeah, I interviewed and got hired in 2010 and I've been here ever since. A fascinating backstory. It's so fun to see how we're all connected um, and it's such a small world. I'm originally from Michigan and Rod, I think you have some spent some time in Michigan as well. Yep. University of Michigan. Uh, for people who are not familiar with wildlife crime, what makes some forms of wildlife trade legal and others illegal? Yeah, um, I could start on that. It's it's really complicated, isn't it? The legislation around wildlife governance and management, uh, it has so many levels because it could be, uh, you know, in the U.S., it could be at your at your local level, your state level, the federal level. Uh, and then we've got the international level in there, which is where most of my research is focused on. So if, if you look at the, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, so CITES, uh, and that's really at that at that highest level where we where we start to distinguish between what is legal and illegal because if a species is listed on CITES uh, then they are protected and they are supposed to go through oversights and uh, regarding permits uh, for trade I, and yet another complicated level of that is that CITES does not require prohibition or, or violation of the convention to be criminal so that just adds a, a whole other layer of complication that if you're in violate, some countries don't approach uh, violations of CITES as, as being illegal, technically criminal, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a different kind of administrative or civil violation. So it is so dependent on the context uh, of which species of wildlife we're talking to, about as to whether that trade is going to be legal or illegal. So what I understand from that is that um, the treaty, the international treaty, um, is implemented in different ways at the domestic level. So not necessarily violations are not necessarily made criminal in each country. Is that what you were kind of saying? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So those 183 members of CITES get to choose how they implement and not all of them criminalize. Tanya has done such extensive research on, uh, on CITES. Uh, the one thing that I try to tell my students is um, there are two appendices, uh, more than two, but two appendices that have to do um, with the degree of endangeredness of um, particular uh, species. So one of the aims of CITES is to protect some species that are in danger of extinction, and some are uh, trying to protect them from becoming closer to extinction. And that's a really oversimplified uh, way of looking at it. And as, as Tanya said, it's quite complicated. 
uh, as you drill down into it. So the latest edition of your book, Wildlife Trafficking, A Deconstruction of the Crime Victims and Offenders, was just published. Uh, you write in it that wildlife trafficking is one of the most profitable black markets in the world, but it is one that receives the least amounts of attention and resources. What do you see the reason for this? And do you think it, that's evolving? Yeah, so, I mean, I've been working on this for about 15 years around wildlife trafficking. And I do think it's involving. I do think there's progress that we are seeing uh, particular governments like here where I'm at in the UK, right? They've had their two um, uh, London conferences around wildlife trafficking and, and it's fairly high profile here in, in some level. But I still argue, you know, we put such a minuscule amount of resources into protecting wildlife from this kind of exploitation than we do to the other big uh, black markets that you'll hear talked about. So um, you, you hear wildlife trafficking and profit, criminal profits uh, compared to, to weapons trafficking, human trafficking or drug trafficking. And yeah, if you look at the resources, law enforcement uh, and policy resources put into those kinds of, of crimes or black markets, it just dwarfs the amount that is put into wildlife trafficking. And there's that great book written by Laurel Neem. I mean, it's all, it's back in 2009, but she gives that great comparison of, of the situation in the U.S. where you have, you know, 5,000 DEA agents and 200 uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service officers. So, so just the, the, the amount of resources are just not comparable. And, and I think, you know, I think there's a fair amount of, of what we call a green criminology or speciesism associated with that is that we are human centered. We're worried about human problems and human injury and human suffering and, and don't treat uh, wildlife as victims or, or take their suffering as seriously as we, as we take human suffering. And we really view wildlife as natural resources. And so that exploitation continues because we have, we treat them as property or we treat them as a commodity that can be used and bought and sold and consumed in, in all these different ways. So I, I think it's a, again, it's a, it's a complicated blend of all these different aspects of, of human society. But yeah, yeah, I do think at the heart of it is that, that we're very uh, focused on our own species and not looking at that big picture. I, I think Tanya has nailed it here. I, I just from my own experience uh, from inside the intelligence community, looking at some of these uh, wildlife crime, uh, crime issues at, at the behest of some of the senior leaders in the US government, but getting traction uh, within these communities who really did not see this uh, as a serious crime. And in fact, uh, I, I think that's, that's something that's probably evolving, but perhaps not as quickly as you know, some of us would hope. But, but you know the the difficulty in bringing some of these uh, cases to uh, prosecution and judgments and um, the difficulties in turning you know resources towards looking at financial flows in the wildlife trade for for some of us this was an uphill climb from you know all the way back to 2009 and 10 when you know we saw things like um, ivory poaching uh, and, and rhino horn uh, poaching just go through the roof. Um, so there's always been this, you know, this, 
this thing that wildlife crime is not serious and the and the prosecutions and the sentences uh, don't seem to reflect those of serious crimes. Um, that's changing a little bit, but uh, still a lot more needs to happen. I'm new to uh, ecological security. I've learned a lot uh, from Rod over the last few months. And um, Tanya, you mentioned, you know, we take a human centered approach to life on this planet and yet the planet is our home and what could be more central than our home and and if we don't have it anymore where do we go i mean how do we get people to start focusing on ecosystems and these species as being integral parts of these ecosystems and when they disappear that those ecosystems start to fall apart and then i mean i'm just thinking when your predators die off what happens and i'm thinking about just the proliferation of rodents and all the things that make you know human life so complicated so what would it take for us to look at be human centered, but look at the planet as our home and, and these species that are integral to it as being human centered? I wish I knew. <laughs> I think it's such a tough one that um, it is something about shifting human focus from the from the short term and our immediate survival and gratification and daily lives to that longer term. Uh, so I do think that evolutionary studies and those uh, interdisciplinary approaches have a have a big role to play here. That it is, it is about the survival of life, and um, my, my partner and I, Ed Gibney, have actually written an article about that. Of of you know looking at harm in a very different way to how we actually conceptualize it now. That it isn't just about you know where where I'm going to be next week, but where is life on the planet going to be next year and ten years and 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 all that way down the line. So so I think that, you know, there's so much about how we just basic education of everyone in, in schools at all those different levels. Uh, but it's just shifting the conversation across the board of, uh, and it, it's so hard, isn't it, to break out of the, the 24 seven media cycle and the, the glorification and things that we see on social media and other places. But somehow we have to shift to that that longer term view of of looking at, at life as you whole, like you said, Natasha, of, of, of the planet. Um, and it's it's really challenging, and then it just gets dwarfed by other political problems, doesn't it? Oh, it's it's incredibly important. I mean, um, we we live on a finite planet. Uh, you know, treating the Earth as an infinite resource in which we could just take what we wanted and dispose of what we wanted. Um, you know, we're looking at. Uh, the ramifications of that through the biosphere uh, in terms of, um, you know, one manifestation of our uh, misuse of the planet are uh, infectious disease outbreaks and, and pandemics. Another one is climate change. And, you know, these are all uh, signals that treating uh, the biosphere of, of which we are part as some externality uh, is, in the words of some ecologists, uh, sawing off the branch on which we're perched. That's a, that's a great analogy. So let's shift the conversation to transnational organized crime and its connection to illegal wi wildlife trade. Tanya, how do you think we should um, consider transnational organized crime entities? Do they resemble ethnic organized criminal groups such as the Italian or Russian mafia, or are they something else? The transnational organized crime connection to wildlife 
trafficking is a is a, another one that that's complicated because it would depend on the wildlife species and you do see what you're talking about there natasha around what we think of as more traditional kinds of or stereotypical mafia sorts of constructions we do see that for some wildlife trafficking my colleague Don Van Oom, for instance, has done some amazing work around the, the Caspian Sea around caviar, and, and you would see uh, a mafia sort of structure there uh, of what we would see around ethnic ties of the groups and, and how that, that might structure. Where that might change, though, is it's not necessarily the case for, for other kinds of uh, involvement of transnational organized crime groups and wildlife trafficking. So. You know, we, there's evidence that those groups are involved for ivory and for rhino uh, and maybe to some degree to some forms of illegal logging. Um, but those are going to be structured differently and they're not necessarily what we're talking about in terms of the stereotype of organized crime groups. That They'd be much more networked and fluid and adaptive uh, to, to the to the environment that they're that they're working in. So it's another one that's very complicated and very wildlife specific. Um, and I do like to sort of challenge some of the rhetoric around it that, that not all wildlife trafficking is transnational organized crime. You have a lot of other actors involved of individuals who are acting in this out of desperation and poverty. Uh, and then let's not forget, there's a huge amount of corporate crime going on here that there are big businesses involved in a lot of wildlife industries and trafficking wouldn't be possible if they weren't somehow you know, complacent or involved somehow. I'm really glad this question uh, is uh, being asked because I have to say that when I was really struggling in the intelligence community, how to really think about uh, the national security dimensions of wildlife crime, um, it was the work of people like Tanya who helped really uh, solidify how I thought about uh, transnational organized crime, and especially a broader, uh, you know, broader view of that, the, when she touched on um, the highly adaptive and plastic, uh, you know, networks, you know, I started to see this in real time, uh, you know, when we started to really look at that. And that was a pretty sizable mismatch to what I had been hearing even within the the you know the the crime um, analysts uh, inside of the government, and so um, you know I think that's a really important distinction in terms of um, it, it isn't necessarily, although Tanya says in some cases um, it, it looks like traditional ethnic mafia by and large, um, it it looks less like that globally than I think a lot of people expect. And, and um, the corporate dimension and the corruption dimension, I think are historically underplayed. And we uh, always have to bring those in to any kind of security discussion. Let's um, go a bit deeper into the connections between wildlife crime and hard security issues. Um, there are suspected ties between wildlife tra trafficking and insurgency, especially terrorist groups. However, there are a number of voices that argue that these um, ties are strong, while others are arguing that they are weak or non-existent. Where do you fall on the spectrum with, for example, illicit ivory trade? Yeah, I'm one of the people that would, would argue that this really gets exaggerated. I think we do have 
specific examples of cases where insurgent groups or militias, terrorist groups, however we want to conceptualize those, have uh, probably poached elephants and used the ivory to fund um, weapons or, you know, get money for activities. I think there's are a few individual cases where where we know that and we have evidence. But I think the the dialogue around this has really been exaggerated to say that wildlife trafficking is funding terrorism, um, which, yeah, is is overstating it. Like I said, I think for Ivory, there's probably a few individual examples. Um, the one where I think there's much more evidence that this is around insurgents is charcoal, and and I would be a scholar who would who would argue that uh, charcoal is part of the larger spectrum of wildlife trafficking because it is. Uh, you know, massive amounts of deforestation and illegal logging and, and environmental degradation to make the charcoal. And we know in, um, I believe it's, you know, in Sudan, Somalia and areas where it's insurgent groups that are running that charcoal trade and they are making money off of that to support their kinds of activities. I think for others, we have very little evidence of it. So I, I'd be on the, on the spectrum where I think it gets overplayed. This was a, a question that I was asked all, all the time in uh, the government. And I'm in the same uh, space that Tanya is largely. Um, the, you know, the difficulties of being you know, part of the US government and Department of State is when you use the word terrorist, um, it really means something for the United States to designate uh, an entity or a person as a terrorist. And so, Sometimes people use that term loosely, or sometimes I use it specifically. Very often, the questions that I got were specifically about Al Shabaab in uh, in East Africa. And you know, um, my take was that uh, a group like Al Shabaab's, especially when they controlled the ports, uh, you know, in Somalia, that they almost certainly benefited from the trade. But whether it was part of their strategic plan to engage in poaching, I don't think we ever saw that. Tanya brought up charcoal. They were part of, they ran a lot of that illicit charcoal trade, uh, which, you know, in at times was more of a, uh, a factor in deforestation than illegal logging. Um, and so, although the, 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 there's a lot of overlap between those two. But I also think that there are there's a growing voice of people who are trying to minimize the connection. I and you know, um, I did see evidence, um, sometimes classified evidence of of known terrorist groups engage um, in the in the ivory trade. Uh, but I don't think it was at the scale that a lot of uh, you know people were uh, arguing. Well, this has been an interesting discussion. I think we'd like to conclude with a somewhat irreverent question. Um, what is the one thing about your field of expertise that almost no one agrees with you about? Yeah, I feel like this has come up more recently because I've really started speaking out more that I think there is a, and an, you know, you can't really separate social justice, I would say, from species justice. And you have the conservation community and animal organizations really calling that wildlife trafficking needs to be punished harshly with these huge prison sentences and things. And, and I just like to push back on that. We know as criminologists and policymakers that 
prison doesn't work and prison is frankly racist and discriminatory and we shouldn't really be perpetuating it uh particularly in the west where we where we know it has huge problems and it doesn't keep people from reoffending it doesn't do what we think it's supposed to so uh, I don't know that many colleagues would agree with me on that, but I'm I'm starting to really push back on that is we need to come up with alternatives to how we deal with this and prevent this and address it. So we need to be exploring more restorative and reparative approaches where we give people alternatives and we have offenders actually repair the environment and support wildlife projects to uh, rewild or something. But yeah, we, we shouldn't be arguing that prison is the answer for how we're going to tackle wildlife trafficking. Well, thank you so much for a very fascinating discussion. I uh, really appreciate uh, your time, Tanya, and thanks, Rod, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much again for the invitation. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisk.org or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.